Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Even though this might not be real, per se, the consumer, the viewer, does still believe the story, at least in part. And I think that's a really important piece of what has been so captivating about wrestling over the years. Amy Keene on professional wrestling, yes, and the neo-kayfabe economy. As longtime listeners will know, Amy Keene is the executive producer of this show, The New Bazaar. But she's also the host of her own podcast called The Closer, which, by the way, is wonderful and everyone should subscribe to it right now. The Closer is all about dealmaking and the effects of dealmaking on the economy. And it's produced by Project Brazen, which is a company founded by journalists that makes a whole roster of great shows. So go check them out. And today on this show, we are going to air a really great, really gripping episode from season two of The Closer. It's a look at the rise of Vince McMahon and professional wrestling from the 1980s until now. But just under the surface, it's also a profound story about so many of the ways that American life has changed in the last four decades. And so after The Closer episode ends... Amy is going to join me here in the studio, and the two of us are going to chat. We're going to go deeper on this fascinating career of Vince McMahon and all of its consequences. And so here is, without further ado, Season 2, Episode 6 of The Closer. In 1982, succession at one company would end up changing the wrestling industry forever. The thing you have to remember is, as of 1982, Vince Sr. was dying. Vince Sr. was sick. Vince Sr. was Vincent James McMahon. He owned a notable wrestling promotion in the Northeast U.S. His son, Vince Jr., was Vincent Kennedy McMahon, and he wanted to take it over. One of the great mysteries is exactly how you got from Vince you're wanting to cash out to Vince being the owner of the company because it didn't happen in the way you would think. You'd think, okay, well, Vince Sr. must have just left the company to his son and said, hey, take over for me, son. No, no. Vince Sr. did not have that kind of trust or affection towards Vince Jr., So what Vince Sr. does is he creates this plan where Vince Jr. has to make a series of payments called balloon payments. The deal isn't even closed. For the next year, he has to make four payments, uh, quarterly installments, to his father and the minority shareholders of the company. And he had to pay over a million dollars to them. And the nature of a balloon payment is if you miss any of the payments, not only do you not get the company, you don't get back any of the money that you already paid. So it was a very punishing payment schedule. And I think there was probably some degree of Vince convincing his father that he would play by the rules. Because the way Vince has always portrayed what happened was, he says, if my father had known what I was going to do with the company, he never would have sold it to me. What Vince wanted was to make an empire out of the regional wrestling business his father had carefully built over a career. And he'd do so in a series of never-been-done-before deals that broke the rules of the industry and put himself at the center of it all. Ladies and gentlemen, the chairman of the WWE, Mr. McMahon! 
This is The Closer, our show about deals and dealmakers that change the world. I'm Amy Keene. My guest this week has spent a lot of time thinking about Vince McMahon, both the business executive and the wrestling character. Vince was somebody who had echoed in my brain since I was a kid. Abraham Josephine Reisman, Josie for short, grew up watching wrestling. Today, she's an arts and culture writer and author of the book Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Vince just seemed like the, not only was he a driving force in the transformation that our society has gone through, he is at the very least probably the best case study in how you build an empire in the attention economy and how you get people to enrich you in their hatred of you. Screw you! You're fired! You're fired! Whoa! You're fired! You're fired! We'll be right back. Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the person known to the world as Vince McMahon or Mr. McMahon, was born as Vincent Kennedy McMahon, but was not known by that name throughout his entire childhood. He was known as Vinny Lupton because his father, his biological father, Vincent James McMahon, who I guess we'll just call Vince Sr., as he is known in the industry now, Vince Sr. had abandoned young Vinny and his brother Rod and their mother, And that happened right around when Vince was born in 1945. So he did not know his father. In that time, he didn't even really watch wrestling. But wrestling was already the family business. Vince Sr. was a notable wrestling promoter, and his father had been a famous boxing and wrestling promoter himself. And Vince Sr. was kind of living high on the hog while Vince Jr., you know, the Vince of this story, was living in dirt poverty in semi-rural North Carolina uh, while his father is up in the D.C. area and doing business in New York. One day, when Vinny's 12 years old, he gets a call from Vince Sr.'s second wife, Juanita. She wants to arrange a meetup between Vince Sr. and his kids. It must have been the strangest moment in young Vinny's life. You know, Vince has very rarely talked about this. I only found out about the details of that meetup from an unpublished interview that I found on micro cassette from an old a reporter who used to work for the in-house magazine uh, of WWE, where he spilled the beans about what his relationship with his parents was like, at least to a certain extent. And it wasn't pretty. His mother and his stepfather, this had been said in another interview, allegedly were abusive towards him. Then he, at age 12, meets his dad, goes to the glittering Isles of New York City, and all of a sudden has this entirely new prospect for his life, which is getting involved in professional wrestling. He is quite young at the time, but do you have a sense of what he was after or or what he wanted after this meeting? What does any child want? The love of a parent. And the fact is, Vince Sr. kind of wasn't interested in that. And Vince never stopped trying to get his father's respect and love. I think he ended up not only getting into wrestling, but learning a lot from his father that you might qualify as sort of the dark arts of wrestling promotion. The dark arts 
of wrestling promotion. The wrestling of Vincenior's day combined tradition from two different worlds, that of the traveling carnival, where performers would stage matches that looked real but were actually fixed, and the world of legitimate sports. This is always the hardest part of any interview is like, how do I summarize all of pro wrestling in a soundbite? It's something that's so confusing and so bizarre and so uniquely American that it's very hard to put into words. But basically, in Vince Sr.'s day, wrestling was billed to the public as a legitimate sporting competition when, in fact, it was not. Mm -hmm. This is the idea of kayfabe. This is the idea, yes, that we would later come to know wrestlers had been calling behind the scenes kayfabe, K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. It was a long-running carny term that was used in wrestling. It is an unclear linguistic origin, but it may be pig Latin for be fake. And the idea was if you were talking to any outsider to wrestling, you could not admit that what you did was fake both in terms of the actual sport, the grappling, but also in terms of your character and in terms of the nature of what the show people would go to was. You had to really commit to the kayfabe of the match, of the business. And that kayfabe was always a tension between fantasy and reality uh, because the public needs to believe wrestling is real. The business of this type of wrestling operated like a series of regional fiefdoms around the country. Sure, there might be some promotions in different parts of the U.S., but each wrestling lord, if you will, usually stuck to his territory. A young Vince tried to find his way into his father's operation, what was then called the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, but he was routinely dismissed by the senior Vince. That is until one day, when he catches a break— on the night of a televised wrestling show, his father unceremoniously fires the longtime announcer over a salary dispute and then tells Vince, you're going to be the announcer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All-American Wrestling and a Happy New Year to you all. This is Vince McMahon reporting. Which was, weirdly, the best job Vince ever could have gotten in wrestling because he didn't have power the way his father did, but he was somebody who could subtly influence the viewer or the listener of the, the broadcasts. On top of announcing, Vince tries to push further into wrestling. He's now married to his childhood sweetheart, Linda, and together they launch their own business called Titan Sports. They work on a promotion for Vince Sr. up in Maine, take over a Cape Cod sports venue, and end up falling into personal bankruptcy together all before 1980. But by the early 80s, Vince sets his sights on another opportunity, one that would establish him as a powerful new force in the world of wrestling, buying his dad's company. For the most part, wrestling was regarded as this sideshow. And Vince wanted to take this regional art form and his regional company within that and turn that company into you know, Major League Baseball, except for wrestling. That was the dream he had. And what Vince was proposing was the most radically destabilizing move in the history of wrestling, which was, let's just drive everybody else out of business. After the deal closes, he quickly sets in motion a series of moves to take the WWF national and blow up the way the industry has operated for years. The first move is to take over a promotion on the West Coast. 
the LaBelle family had been dominant in Southern California wrestling for a while, and they had a good relationship with Vince Sr. There had been this little organization called like the Atlantic Pacific Wrestling Corporation, I believe it was called, that was kind of an informal, I mean, it was formal, but loose agreement between the LaBelles and Vince Sr. to, you know, share talent occasionally, do shows, whatever. But it was not a merger. This was very much two discrete companies that had a joint agreement. And then when Vince takes over, Vince Jr., that is, Mike LaBelle was in rough financial straits and Vince saw an opportunity. And he did something completely crazy, which was he he bought the Southern California promotion and then abruptly his company is bicoastal. No territory had been in charge of New York and Los Angeles before. It was a stunning development. So that, that was one of the first big steps that Vince took towards national dominance was essentially closing in the country, or at least the continental United States, with that deal. So he's got two physical territories now, but he wants to be even bigger. The next move is to turn to television. One of the main rivals to Vince Jr. and his World Wrestling Federation was a company called Georgia Championship Wrestling, or GCW. They had a TV show called World Championship Wrestling. And long, long story short, Vince was given an opportunity by somebody who was a bit of a turncoat from Georgia Championship Wrestling to buy a controlling interest in that company. So Vince and Linda buy a controlling interest in Georgia Championship Wrestling without telling basically anybody. And then on July 14th, 1984, you were watching wrestling. On behalf of WTBS, it's a pleasure to welcome the World Wrestling Federation. Exciting new matches, and here's the man to tell you all about it. Here's Vince McMahon. Vince? And abruptly, at the very top of the show, who does the announcer call in but Vince McMahon and says, you know, here's the new person in charge of our company, Vince McMahon. Thank you very much, Freddie. Welcome aboard. Thank you. It is indeed a pleasure to be associated with WTBS, and we promise to bring you the greatest in professional wrestling entertainment in the world today. I say in the book, it's not unlike for a wrestling fan watching the State of the Union, and all of a sudden the person who comes up to the podium is not the president, but, you know, the premier of the Soviet Union. It was the primary rival to World Wrestling Federation, and yet... Here it is. World Wrestling Federation is in charge. And the most important thing was, this was a show on cable. Because Georgia Championship Wrestling had a deal with Ted Turner. And Ted Turner had launched TBS, the first superstation. So all of a sudden, Vince is doing this nationally broadcast cable show. The day would become known among the wrestling world as Black Saturday. And Black Saturday is called that because it was a moment when wrestling fans, especially Southern wrestling fans, realized that their preferred form of wrestling was under possibly mortal threat. One of the things that I find so interesting about this particular deal is that what he's looking for here is that national syndication, that national broadcast 
opportunity. But in recent years, if someone was looking, if, you know, if, if an executive was looking for that kind of reach, you'd probably think of them going, you know, to negotiate a series or a single syndication deal. But instead, he just buys out the promotion that has the TV deal that he wants. This is this is classic Vince. He's an outside the box thinker. He is somebody who looks at an impasse and thinks, well, how can I not maneuver around this, but just break through it, just destroy it. But the GCW deal, no one had ever seen anything like that because Vince was one of the first people to realize that if you can take what's happening behind the scenes and suggest that it's happening in a way that causes fans and viewers to go, wait, what's really going on? And that urge to figure out what the hell is going on has been Vince's bread and butter for decades. And Black Saturday was, I would argue, sort of the first big display of that. It was just saying, hey, you like drama? Well, we've got drama outside the ring too. And you can sort of be a part of that if you keep watching. Drama came in the way he scooped up talent, too. He'd find up-and-coming performers and woo them away from their current gig with more money than they'd find anywhere else. The big name that you know from the 80s, if you were alive in the 80s and vaguely conscious, is Hulk Hogan. I gotta tell you, folks, wait till Hulk Hogan comes out here. The rip is gonna come off the Bell Center here in Montreal. So there was this phenomenon called Hulkamania that was happening in the AWA, American Wrestling Association. You're talking about a man six foot eight. You're talking about a man in body weight. You're talking about 340 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. You're talking about Hulk Hogan, the heartthrob. Just as that's happening, Vince swoops in, has a private meeting with Hulk Hogan, and signs him to WWF. And all of a sudden, Hulkamania is a WWF phenomenon. And, you know, in order to get people on board, he just offered them a lot of money, which they'd never seen before, because these were guys who were used to just doing it for 20 bucks and beer and maybe some tail at a local wrestling event. That's what these men were used to. And then all of a sudden, Vince shows up and starts offering them big TV money And more importantly, licensing deals. That was a huge thing, was you could get money from merchandise with your face on it, then people were willing to come over. The fourth big move was the creation of something called WrestleMania. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to WrestleMania. WrestleMania 1, which was held in March of 1985, was this multimedia spectacle unlike anything that had ever been tried in wrestling. A one-night event at Madison Square Garden featuring multiple wrestling matches between the biggest WWF names as well as celebrity referees and timekeepers. As they're hanging off the rafters just here in Madison Square Garden. That's right, WrestleMania, Gino. WrestleMania, it's living up to everything I expected it to be, Gino Monsoon. I'm keyed up. Chico Santana against the man. And... You had Mr. T and Hulk Hogan hosting SNL the night before WrestleMania. We came to Saturday Night Live for one reason, brother. We haven't been eating any food all week. We've been drinking grapefruit juice, eating skinny little chickens. And tonight, my main man T told me if we came to Saturday Night Live, we'd get a laugh. 
because this is the best darn show in the whole wild world. WrestleMania was something that Vince successfully hyped up to the rafters, and about a million people watched that first one, which is not that many in today's numbers, but was huge for a wrestling show. And of course, it only went upward from there, and WrestleMania became an annual event. But this is the kind of fearless, weird guy that Vince is. He really believed it would take off, and he was right. That fearlessness translated to money. The company brought in $63 million in 1985, more than double that of the previous year. And the business itself, which had operated on cash deals and backroom handshakes for decades, was becoming much more corporate under Vince's reign. How did the product change from Vince Sr.'s ownership to, to Vince's? Vince was pretty much the creative force in those early years of his ownership of the WWF. The wrestling product that Vince was creating became much more TV-ified. It was an event that prior to Vince's takeover had largely been shaggy. The matches weren't necessarily very explosive. And Vince decided, okay, let's make this like a regular sporting program. Let's have flashy graphics. Let's have theme music. Let's have all of this stuff to get people juiced up. And more importantly, the content became much more noticeably fake or questionably real at the very least. And he also started, he being Vince, started using a new term to describe the product that was made, which is sports entertainment. And that was another little subtle hint that maybe what you were watching was not entirely on the level. Let's take a quick break. When we come back... Nobody, nobody in a regulatory position or any other position of power wanted to be seen as taking wrestling seriously. And that's how those abuses were allowed to continue. Vince McMahon's ruthless expansion made the WWF a powerful force in U.S. wrestling, but it also generated stories of a cruel and callous culture. There was the steroid use and substance abuse among many performers, but more seriously, there were allegations that McMahon's lieutenants had sexually assaulted young boys who worked promotions, domestic violence allegations against some performers, and in more than one case, allegations of murder against certain wrestlers. And then against Vince himself, an allegation he raped the first female referee in the WWF. Yet McMahon and the WWF seemed to avoid scrutiny. Nobody, nobody in a regulatory position or any other position of power wanted to be seen as taking wrestling seriously. This is the original sin of politicians and the media when it comes to wrestling, is people tend to assume because they think the product is silly, the process that made it must have been silly as well. You know, that is not true. It's a very brutal industry. And the fact is, no one was paying attention because they thought it was dumb. Or on top of that, you had people who were paying close attention, thought of it as fake, and were willing to defend it to the death because they loved it as a product so much. So it's a real perfect storm 
of conditions that lead to people turning a blind eye. And that's how those abuses were allowed to continue. That changed in the early 90s. Victims of sexual assault and the victim of Vince's alleged rape came forward. News broke that the Department of Justice was investigating the WWF on, quote, allegations of sexual abuse of minors. But the federal case that would take Vince to court was not about sexual abuse. The DOJ charged him and his company, Titan Sports, with illegal distribution of steroids. The Justice Department seems to have wanted to crack down on Vince in one way or another in the early 90s. They ended up bringing a case uh, about steroid distribution. Prosecutors zeroed in on one particular alleged exchange in New York. And they couldn't prove that it happened. And the case fell apart and Vince was found, he was acquitted, you know. It, it It was not ultimately a problem for him. If anything, it was a huge advantage. Now, some executives might have taken this run-in with the Justice Department as a warning to rein it in. But Vince was emboldened. You see this real shift in Vince's personality and approach to the media after that. He decides, okay, my new stance towards the media is screw you. My new stance towards the government is I beat you you can't touch me. And you see this new, more confident, not that he was ever that unconfident, but more confident and more defiant and insulting Vince McMahon. That's who emerges out of the ashes of his very rough early 90s. He takes this new approach and writes himself into the WWF as a character with his own storyline. Well, The necessary preface to that is, in 1989, Vince killed Kayfabe. Kayfabe, as it had existed for a century, died in February of 1989 when the New York Times and the New York Post ran big stories on the deregulation effort that Vince was undertaking in various states and in, in, in various lawsuits, he was also defending himself. And in all of these cases, he was telling people in private, whether they were legislators or lawyers, hey, this is all fake. Don't worry about it. It's all fake. You don't need to regulate me and I'm not liable for anything. And eventually, once this got reported in 1989 in those big stories, that was the end of the public illusion that was already a bit threadbare about wrestling's legitimacy. And that was a huge hit to wrestling because for the next few years, you have real diminishing returns. Diminishing returns for the industry as a whole, and especially so at the WWF. In Josie's words, wrestling got silly and lost some of its allure. One of Vince's main competitors, Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling, manages to pick up some market share during this period, beating out WWF in the ratings wars. This brings us to Vince's decision to enter the stream of his own storytelling in 1996 and 1997, and then especially in 1998. What happens is you get the development of this phenomenon that I term as neo kayfabe Neo-kayfabe is when you're telling the audience not, hey, everything here is real, but rather, hey, everything here is fake. Don't worry about it. It's all scripted. Now let's get on with the show. 
But the key here is not you're not just saying it's all fake. You're saying it's all fake except for the parts that are going to be real. And that is the magic nature of Neo Kayfabe is you get to pick what you think is real. You get to choose your own reality. Once you get into Neo Kayfabe, you're in a hall of mirrors. This hall of mirrors becomes a central part of WWF matches after Vince executes something called the Montreal Screwjob in 1997. To sum it up briefly, he flipped the script on star wrestler Bret Hart during a match without telling him. Bret lost a match he was expecting to win, and Vince McMahon emerged as the villain of the story to fans. And Vince, in a genius move, decides, I'm going to be a villain now, on the show, not just behind the scenes. I'm just going to say I'm evil and a liar and can't be trusted. I'm going to say it openly. And then after that, what are they going to do? I already said it. I admitted it. This was Vince's insight. He decided, I'm going to make money off of the fact that people despise me by getting out there and juicing interest in myself and my promotion through evil acts. And it worked tremendously well. Mr. McMahon, as the character of Vince McMahon came to be known, was the fulcrum point of the entire promotion for a number of years. Everything revolved around Mr. McMahon and people couldn't get enough of it. The storylines became extremely offensive and that was the idea. It was just what gets people riled up. That was the point. The storylines were more physically violent, filled with more bigotry, misogyny, and sexual violence than the WWF had entertained before. But this new approach brought in viewers and it rebalanced the company's coffers. 1999 turns out to be WWF's best year on record at that point, with $250 million in revenue. By this point, McMahon's brought his two adult kids, Stephanie and Shane, into the business and into the ring with their own storylines. Then he and Linda seal the company's corporate evolution by going public, making the two of them billionaires in the process. Meanwhile, McMahon's deal-making continues. He takes over rival promotion WCW. Then he picks up the pieces of another promotion that's gone bankrupt. He changes the company name from WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, to WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, thanks to a lawsuit from the environmental group that also used the acronym WWF. He now controls wrestling in the U.S. and Canada and becomes a powerful force beyond the ring, too. You make the case in the book that Vince McMahon is responsible or more responsible for the current state of American politics than a lot of people probably or at least might recognize. Tell us, tell me what you mean by that. You remember, you weren't even watching wrestling, but you remember the late 90s. You couldn't avoid wrestling. And that era of wrestling, that late 90s wrestling, was the height of neo kayfabe. This was a massively influential cultural product for a whole generation of people. But in a more direct way... Vince is just a major Republican player. Vince and especially his wife, Linda. They are very close with the Trumps, and Trump has been very influenced by Vince's approach to wrestling. Trump's image was deeply influenced by his appearances in the wrestling programming culminating in WrestleMania in 2007. I'm taller than you. I'm better looking than you. 
I think, I think I'm stronger than you. And once you have Trump in the White House, or even before that, once you have Trump dominating the airwaves and bringing this pro-wrestling-infused neo-kayfabe approach to politics, it, it was so instantly appealing to a broad swath of the public that there's no going back. And what's really dangerous is you have a combination of people going, it's all bullshit, I'll just watch it for the spectacle, or it's all bullshit except for my secret theory about what's really going on. And that's how you get QAnon, it's how you get Russiagate conspiracy theorizing, it's how you completely lose your mind. Vince's rise and the kind of product that Vince managed to win with both tell us a lot about the mess we're in right now. In 2022, the Wall Street Journal reports that McMahon is under investigation by the company's board of directors for millions of dollars in alleged hush money payments to women with whom he'd had sexual relationships, women who worked for the WWE. Allegations have emerged involving WWE billionaire CEO Vince McMahon. The company says Vince will step back as chairman and CEO during the investigation. His daughter Stephanie will step up for the day-to-day operations. But then WWE makes another announcement, saying Mr. McMahon, Vince's in-ring character, would be making an announcement on the next live episode of a WWE show called SmackDown. So, the opening credits roll, and then... Vince's music hits. Mr. McMahon! It's this very intimidating song called No Chance in Hell. And out he walks. The crowd is a mix of cheers and boos. They don't quite know what to make of him. He walks to the ring, takes the microphone, and proceeds to give a brief little address that has absolutely nothing to do with the allegations whatsoever. He gets up there and basically says... You know, the slogan of WWE is then, now, together, forever. And And the the most most important important word there is together. together. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to SmackDown. And he tossed aside the mic and that was it. That was it. Didn't mention the allegations, nothing. It was just a declaration of, I'm here and you can't move me. I'm here. Sorry. It was an implicit declaration that nothing was going to take him down. And then a few weeks later, he did step back. He announced he'd be retiring. The whole spectacle was reminiscent of the way McMahon responded to the doping indictment and acquittal. Whatever you might expect from a corporate CEO, Vince McMahon was always going to break those rules. And I remember the Washington Post called me up and said, can you write an opinion piece about the end of the Vince McMahon era? And I said, I'll only write it if you let it be This is not the end of the Vince McMahon era. And I said, the story here is Vince is still the principal shareholder of this company. It's a publicly traded company, as of then, and he is the largest individual shareholder and controls about 80% of the shareholder votes. He is not out of power. He can come back anytime he likes. And sure enough, flash forward to a few months after that, And Vince makes this stunning return where he ousts a bunch of people from the board, installs himself as executive chairman, and pursues a sale of the company. A sale to Endeavor, the entertainment and media agency and owner of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, run by Hollywood mogul Ari Emanuel. And the price tag? $9.3 billion. That's more than Disney paid 
for Star Wars and the Marvel characters combined. That's how valuable an entertainment property WWE is in the marketplace, or at least to its new owner, Ari Emanuel of Endeavor. Is there some kind of vindication in there for Vince about who ultimately now owns the company? Oh, this is the big question for me, is what is the future of this partnership, of this this new structure where Endeavor and Ari Emanuel own a merged UFC, the mixed martial arts company, and WWE? You know, what do we do with this? Vince has not had a real boss, basically since his father, and as we discussed, that did not go well. Vince does not do well with taking orders from anybody. All I can say is good luck, Ari. Okay, folks, it's Cardiff here again, and I am joined in the studio by Amy Keene. Hello. Amy, how are you? I'm great. It's really nice to be back in the studio with you. Yes, same. First question is, did you become a huge professional wrestling fan (laughs) after... Making this episode, the making this episode, reading uh, <laughs> Josie Reisman's book. Um, I can't say that I became a fan, but I did develop just a profound appreciation for the cultural significance of professional wrestling mm-hmm. and specifically of the wrestling product that Vince McMahon created. I realized that it was about so much more than what I saw on the TV as a kid. You know, I, I think about it this way Josie talks about the generation of millennial, predominantly men, who were influenced by the wrestling product that are now in positions of leadership, you know, in businesses and political positions across the country, all the way up to, I think, the most famous example, perhaps the most overused example, but Donald Trump. Vince McMahon is one of Donald Trump's few sort of known close friends. And Donald Trump played a big role in wrestling matches and WWE matches in the 90s and in the 2000s. And it's hard not to see Vince's influence in the way that Donald Trump presents himself at rallies, just the way he structures his entire like political and public persona, Vince's influence has sort of spanned the decades and I think many levels of power in this country. By pure coincidence, I listened to your episode at the same time that I was reading Chuck Klosterman's book on the 90s, which is called The 90s, A Book. <laughs> That's all you need. Just the book. Yeah, it says everything there. And the book doesn't include a lot about wrestling, but it is all about how culture evolved in the 90s. And it just hit me listening to your episode how perfectly wrestling kind of moved right into the slipstream of what was going on at the time. And so, for example, here's something that Klosterman writes. What Tarantino captured, he's talking about the movies of Quentin Tarantino, what Tarantino captured was something that was accelerating all across culture. Not reality, but a kind of hyper-reality where the secondary meaning always mattered more than the first. And then he talks about some of the different examples. So Kurt Cobain being a rock star whose main purpose was to critique what it means to be a rock star. And he writes that Seinfeld was a TV show in which the characters tried to make a TV show that was exactly like the TV show that people were watching, right? Reservoir Dogs had a fake crime story inside the fake crime story that you were watching. Wrestling is perfect for this because not only is the product fake, but the stuff going behind the scenes was often also faked. It was fakery built on fakery. 
Yeah, and, and that was the case for wrestling from, I don't want to say the beginning of time, but for decades before Vince took over. And so that style of that sort of fakery on top of, you know, whatever you're seeing in front of you, that was there already. But, I you know, I was thinking about this that we were making the episode was I think the difference was television. I think the difference there is that there's this screen, and especially if you think about the way television worked in the 80s, 90s, even the early aughts, like before social media, there was this distance where you believed what you were watching and you also sort of were captivated by the person putting on the show. And so if you think of, you know, if, say, wrestling were to begin today, I don't think we'd have that same sort of belief in what we were seeing on the screen and that ability to be taken by the primary narrative and then also invested in this secondary, potentially fake narrative. But it's competing with too much now if it were to be introduced now, whereas back in the day when it was being introduced, it was earlier days for the introduction of television and therefore for the kind of introduction of visual persuasion en masse, the power of charisma, the power of visual images to really move people and to persuade them. I think that's all kind of part of the story, too. Yeah. And I think Vince seized on that. I mean, one of the first things that he did was maybe like the second or third thing he did after he took over the company is that he went out and took over like television slots so that he could make sure his promotion was airing you know, we called it Black Saturday, Mm -hmm. where he took over the time slot of a competitive promotion. But the whole point was for him to own and have the power over what wrestling viewers were going to be watching. So I think that the kind of the economics of television at the time, the way television worked in a pre-social media, pre-internet age, has a lot to do with what they were able to create and then convince viewers of. I was trying to think of some other reasons why wrestling took off the way it did when it did, besides just the fact that television was coming, you know, was becoming such a prominent part of life in the U.S. and I guess around the world as well. And I came across another paragraph from Klosterman that sort of made me think about it a lot more deeply. So Klosterman is talking about how in the aftermath of World War II, the amount of Art in general, the amount of manufactured art grew exponentially. It was so enormous that you could now start making artistic works based on other artistic works. So, for example, he writes, the volume was now vast enough to replace the natural world in totality. A fixed reality was no longer needed. There was enough unfixed reality inside a single blockbuster, remember those, to sustain the entire cinematic universe. Content could be made from content. Professional wrestling seems exactly like this. I don't think it's a coincidence that it took off when it did. And what we have here is a situation where Vince McMahon not only created this very real business or further developed, you know, made popular this very real business that he took over from his dad, but he also started expanding the universe based on the fake stuff that he had also produced, right? So it was a real business with fake fights and increasingly fake business stuff happening behind the scenes. And the storylines could just build on themselves and expand with, again, no or very little basis in fixed reality. If you really start to think about this too much, like it blows your head open because think of all the other ways it applies in modern life. Yeah, and I mean, to take that one step further, one of the things he did, especially as he started to build out his roster of these big names, like you think of Hulk Hogan, 
What he lured them in with was a little bit more money than they were getting elsewhere, but also the opportunity to license their likeness, which is just yet another way of building on this existing content, these fake storylines of the evil heel and the victorious protagonist. He's building off of these storylines and creating like an entire product line for people to purchase and collect and so forth, but it's building on that sort of fakeness on top of fakeness and making money off of it. And I think it's important to note that even in this series of stories built on stories, content made on content, yes, these are storylines made up. Even though this might not be real per se, the consumer, the viewer, does still believe the story, at least in part. And I think that's a really important piece of what has been so captivating about wrestling over the years. And there's occasionally a wink, wink and a nod, nod. at something that might be real, but might be fake. Yeah. And it keeps you guessing. And maybe that's part of the appeal as well. Yeah. And you talk to wrestling fans and I think there's a varying degree of just how in on the story they want to be. Yeah. There's a lot of obvious ways that you can see how this connects to the kind of modern, I don't know, entertainment landscape, the modern media landscape, and certainly the social media landscape. But I also thought of meme stocks. The way that all of these kinds of investors behind the scenes on Reddit or whatever tried to make reality something that clearly wasn't, where they'd pump up the stock price of a company that sucks. And weirdly, it would start having these feedback effects into the real world, which I think you have to watch out for, where they'd pump up the stock. And so that made it cheaper for the company then to raise money to then actually get into the better shape that all the meme stock investors were hoping for. That sort of thing doesn't tend to work in the long run, but it was just fascinating to watch over the course of the last few years. And it's still a phenomenon that exists. It also made me think of the era of the superstar CEO. Mm-hmm. Okay, Vince McMahon was definitely one of those, but you can think of a lot of other examples, especially in, I think, the 80s and 90s, and people like Richard Branson, Jack Welsh, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett to some extent, where people weren't just buying the products for the products, they were following the philosophy of the founder. You know, you can move this forward even into the era of crypto where a lot of people sort of see it as almost a quasi-religion and Satoshi, the founder of crypto, as a sort of prophetic or even deity-like figure. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating how this works. And I don't think it's surprising that Vince McMahon became what he became, such a central part of his own product, or that he started his career as an announcer Uh, before he moved into positions of real power as an executive. Yeah. And if I could just add a quick story that we couldn't fit into the episode itself about how he became the announcer. There is this moment, and, and Josie details it so well in the book. But basically, there's this one night. I'm not entirely sure what the arena is that they're at, but Vince is there with his dad. He was trying to get in on the business with his dad, and he was trying to get in on a deeper relationship with his dad, which he never really was able to get. And he's standing, you know, backstage with the longtime announcer, his dad, and, you know, he's standing there. And the announcer and his dad are in some kind of dispute over salary. The announcer had asked for a raise at some point. There was some sort of dispute. And Vince McMahon Sr., Vince's father, had this temper. And he had this signature way of shaking the coins in his pocket and then making a decision. And what he decided that night was, all right, you announcer that's causing me trouble and embarrassing me. You're out. And he looks to his son and says, and you're in. Mm. So it was accidental, but it was this moment where Vince is validated by his dad, something he's been searching for since he met him as a as a young kid. And now he has this opportunity. And exactly as you note, and I think as Josie says in the episode, 
he immediately sees the power that he has to orchestrate the fight and to get the crowd excited and also reveal to the crowd something that maybe they can't see and what was happening behind the scenes. And I think he takes the superstar CEO to the nth degree by eventually, in the 90s, writing himself as the chairman into the storylines as the ultimate heel, the one who is the villain deciding all of the ways the matches are going to go and ultimately becoming the person that everybody loves to hate because they think, okay, what's the chairman going to bring in this time? What's he going to do to, like, you know, my favorite WWE uh, star? And as Josie says, he found the way to make money Mm -hmm. off of people hating him. And as long as he was at the center, that was just never going to end. Yeah. It also made me think of the very strange family dynamics of (laughs) the McMahon family. indeed. And this isn't something new. We've been thinking about this all year because, of course, Succession was a big hit. And so everybody usually links it to the story of the Murdochs, Rupert Murdoch, his kids, and all of his media properties. There's also Sumner Redstone and Viacom and CBS. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you have Vince taking the handoff from his dad, with whom he'd had a very strange, tense relationship, but then also having certain conflicts with his daughter when it seemed like it was time for Vince to move on, and then he changed his mind. Yeah, I think about it this way. Importantly, which we say at the top of the episode, Vince didn't inherit the company from his father. He had to pay for it. His dad didn't want him to have it. So that's a big difference in that sort of traditional succession story. And then what he did is he made this company around him, as we were just talking about. The company needed him in order to continue, and he he made that so. And I think, you know, not to psychologize someone I've never met uh, too much, but I can't help but think that he was, you know, trying to prove something to his father in the way that he developed and grew this company. But then, of course, when the next generation comes in, which he's he brought both his son and daughter into the company in different ways— he can't let go. Mm. You know, the company is him. He is the company. And that becomes really difficult to unwind after all of these years. Yeah. It's perilous to psychoanalyze people in positions like this, right? But it always seems to be the case that people who've, people whose personalities, whose lives, whose identities are so intertwined with the companies that they founded or that, in this case, they made what they are, um, they just never want to step down, right, yeah. ever. And the handoff is always difficult and it's always strained. I can't think of a single example where it's ever been a really good idea for a major founder to have a succession plan where it's just assumed yes. that it's going to be passed on to the kids instead of having some other more typical kind of succession plan that public companies, for example, you know, often get right, often get wrong, but it's not this assumed thing where we're just going to pass it on to somebody I happen to be related to. Yeah. A lesson from uh, McMahon Sr., I guess. Yeah. The connection and the sale to the UFC is totally fascinating to me. As you know, I'm a fan of mixed martial arts, right? And I've been following the story of the business of the UFC for years as well, mainly through the work. And I got to give a shout out here uh, of John Nash, former guest on The New Bazaar, who analyzes the finances of the UFC and of other MMA organizations and boxing uh, and who writes about it at Bloody Elbow, which is awesome. And everybody should subscribe yeah, to that. Deeply thoughtful. Even if you're too. not a fan, Absol- his writing is deeply thoughtful. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that in the UFC, the fights are very, very, very much real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But 
you can still see the influence of wrestling on how the fights get determined, right? Because very often you don't get like number one versus number two, number three versus number four, and so forth. It's not like a tournament or anything like that. Very often the fights that get made are between two fighters who are great at directing attention to themselves, to the possibility of a huge payday. They're great at sort of dictating their own popularity, not through their fighting necessarily, that's part of it, but not the only part of it, but through their charisma, through their ability on television to attract fans and to galvanize haters as well. And so those end up being the big paydays for them and for the sport. And so it's not anything close to a meritocracy when it comes to how the fights get made. Mm -hmm. And so it's just fascinating to me that professional wrestling uh, that Vince McMahon's organization ended up getting sold to the UFC because it's already been deeply influential on how the UFC operates. Yeah. So it was sold to um, UFC's parent company, Endeavor, which is an entertainment conglomerate run by Ari Emanuel. There are a number of things here, I think, to watch for, which is just exactly how do these two companies come together? Mm. You can see lots of opportunity for, you know, negotiating broadcast rights and packaging the two products together. But I think to your point, where do the two differ and where might the two start to overlap in a way that hasn't been the case in the history of both sports? Should have made that more clear, so I'll emphasize one more time. It's been sold to Endeavor, which owns the UFC but does other things as well. There's one other interesting parallel here, which is that Ari Emanuel, who runs Endeavor, um, has already been dealing with a very headstrong personality who works for him named Dana White, who runs the UFC. But there's a difference between Dana White and now Vince McMahon, which is that previously Dana White had been a minority owner of the UFC in the past. The Fertitta brothers were the majority owners before the company was bought by Endeavor. In the case of Vince McMahon, he's just never had a boss, as you point out in the story. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious to see how long that relationship can last with Ari Emanuel, also a famously headstrong person who's now the boss of somebody who's never had a boss before. And as Josie Reisman, who is the guest on this episode, the writer, said, you know, this is going to be something interesting to follow in the future, just the extent to which these two end up butting heads, because it sounded like it was all but inevitable. Yeah, I believe her her words were good luck, Ari. Good luck, Ari. (laughs) Not good luck, Vince. Good luck, Ari. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, Ari. Uh, All right. Well, that's it, I think, for this episode of The New Bazaar. This was a, an offbeat topic, but what a fun one. And, you know, it's such a fascinating thing to think about all the different ways beyond even the obvious connection to Donald Trump and all that. Because yeah. I actually get I actually get a little bored of that like comparison because it's made so often. Mm-hmm. I think that if you look at the influence of professional wrestling on culture, on entertainment, on media, on the arts, it runs so much deeper than just that connection. And this was a really fun way to explore it. Thanks, Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. That's our show for today, folks. You can find links to The Closer podcast and newsletter written by Ben Walsh in the show notes for this episode. Again, go subscribe to both the podcast and the newsletter from The Closer. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and executive producer slash podcast co-host par excellence, Amy Keene. 
Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next episode.